You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this uh, edition of The Zeitgeist. Uh, we have a special guest here with us today, um, Professor Gabriel Felbermeier who is the president of the Institute for the World Economy in Kiel, which is one of Germany's leading uh, economic research organizations. And uh, we're here also with Peter Rashish, senior fellow and director of the AICGS Geoeconomics Program. You know, Professor Felbermeier is with us in Washington uh, as part of our Allianz uh, Geoeconomic Speaker Series. And w the purpose of that is to bring leading economic thinkers into contact with American audiences academic audiences, policy, government, and media. And uh, and that's uh, also why we wanted to have him here on the Zeitgeist. And uh, if I can uh, maybe start off by uh, talking about um, uh, something you mentioned at our earlier talk today, uh, and that is research that you have done into the transatlantic trade balance. Of course, in the United States, uh, we hear a, a lot from the administration and also from Congress about U.S. trade with China, U.S. trade with Europe. And uh, one of the striking findings um, that I'd like to start off talking about is uh, your research that shows essentially that U.S. trade with the European Union is in overall balance. How does that, uh, how does that come about? It seems so different from the intuitive understanding so many Americans have. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, very good question, Chef. I think what the uh, official uh, discussions almost always are uniquely about is uh, trading goods. And of course, that is an important part of the overall current account. But uh, the U.S. economy consists uh, uh, maybe of 12-13% of value added generated in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. The manufacturing sector produces this goods trade, and the rest is something else, services. Yeah. And in services trade, uh, the U.S. economy has its comparative advantage. So what you would expect just by looking at the structural issues, structural uh, patterns in the U.S., you would expect America to have a trade deficit in goods, steel, cars, these things, and a trade surplus in services. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what we have. Uh, so uh, if you look at services and goods trade together, the trade balance becomes much nicer yeah, uh, it is still negative uh, between the uh, U.S. and uh, and Europe, but it's much smaller. And if you then add in that services often are traded in bizarre ways, it's not that uh, you know someone who uses uh, software on on uh, his iPhone like I do uh, doesn't uh, buy uh, that software in the United States or or pay royalties directly mm -hmm. uh, to Apple, but we do that through. Uh, American subsidiaries in Europe, for example, in Ireland. And then uh, services trade often pops up in a different account. It's called the so-called primary income accounts. And there, the U.S. Okay. makes a lot of money with Europe. So if you put these things together, the goods trade balance, the services trade balance, the primary income accounts, and then another small item is so-called secondary incomes. This is what uh, private people send home, remittances of migrants, right. or when um, uh, the EU uh, Commission... Uh, um, uh, finds Microsoft uh, or, or okay. uh, the chairman, the U.S. administration finds the German bank. These things have happened in the past, and this shows up in secondary. It's not important, but overall, it then turns out that in 2018, the U.S. had run a current account surplus with the EU of 14 billion euros. 
uh, dollars, that is, $14 billion. And this has been going on since 2009. So it's not just, you know, a happy coincidence in one year, but this has been going on for 10 years now. So the relationship, the economic relationship is essentially balanced. Well, that's a striking uh, finding, and, uh, and, and I th- it cuts against the grain of so much of what people think they understand uh, in the United States about our role in the world economy, and uh, I'm, I'm really thankful for that uh, detailed description. Now, if we look at Germany, if we single out Germany uh, in that mix, how, how does the picture look? So first of all, we shouldn't single out Germany, really, because Germany is part of the European single market, uh, and um, uh, how transactions are booked bilaterally between one member of the single market and the United States often is really up to, you know, uh, how companies are organized, how uh, you know how the accounting happens in detail. Yeah, because uh, of Europe being a single market. Uh, many uh, U.S. software firms have subsidiaries in Ireland and from Ireland then sell onwards uh, to mm-hmm. Germany. So if you look at the U.S.-German statistics, you would be, you know, you would be uh, surprised because there's, there's essentially no services trade between uh, the U.S. and Germany. In but the official statistics. In the, in the bilateral statistics, because... And you're surprised because we know, you know, it's just look at what people what people do in, in, in Germany, what software they use on their computers, on their phones on. Uh, but that is all in the trade relationship of Germany with Ireland, right? And, and okay. it is uh, patents, for example, copyrights, uh, and so on, that uh, American firms uh, put into their subsidiaries in Ireland. And from then, from there, they sell to Germany. And that what that does is... It uh, lets uh, you know. It it, it, it makes the uh, U.S.-German relationship look uh, very uh, narrow. No? Yeah. Just goods trade, services trade doesn't pop up. In goods trade, the U.S. have a deficit. In services, they have a surplus. But the surplus in the bilateral relationship doesn't doesn't appear. It's all in the relationship between Germany and Ireland. Germany runs a big. Uh, services deficit with Ireland, but it's not Irish programmers. It's not even Irish right. profits. It's Apple. Up. It's exactly. perhaps Microsoft. Yes. It's uh, others. Yes. I see. Well, so so I think that's a uh, what we would say a grain of salt. Uh, it's a bigger bigger than just a grain. Anytime uh, a a U.S. Um, uh, leader is talking about a trade uh, deficit with Germany, then immediately we can discount that because it doesn't it doesn't incorporate. All these factors you've just described. Yes, you should so because, of course, you know we should look at the entire economic relationship uh, and not just at goods trade. Goods trade statistics are more or less okay. Yeah, you know, we have really done a lot of forensic research in understanding whose data is correct, who's not. In goods trade, the statistics are fine, and indeed, the U.S. have a deficit in goods trade, but that per se doesn't tell us anything. Because we know that uh, that uh, countries should specialize, no? and the U.S. has the strong competitive advantage in services, and it is in the services sector that yeah. uh, it should generate surpluses. That those surpluses don't turn up in the in the statistics with Germany. That's an artifact, yeah. right? It has to do with how Europe is constructed. It has to do with with uh, tax evasion. No? Yeah. Uh, so it has nothing to do with the fundamental relationship. It's more about you know those accounting practices and sometimes even illegal ones or you know let's say creative uh, ones creative ones that uh, <laughs> that uh, 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 we should not take as as informative about the fundamental relationship yeah really it's true that there's a tends to be more of a focus on the on the trade in goods mm. rather than services and certainly the president points to that and if I'm not mistaken the US has also a global deficit in in goods trade not just with the EU but is there anything 
about manufacturing, uh, about manufacturing jobs or about manufacturing's role in the economy uh, that should make us concerned that the U.S. isn't as strong in manufacturing and as a manufacturing exporter? So I think in, in uh, times where uh, all big powers in the world agree on basic principles of good conduct, where there is uh, trust that no one abuses uh, of its uh, relative positions, in such a world, every country can specialize in that sector where it has its competitive advantages, and we should be, you know, we shouldn't be nervous about it. But we are in a different situation right now. We're back in a situation where we have two strategic rivalries, uh, in particular between China and uh, and the United States. And uh, the United States runs a big deficit in goods trade uh, with China. It's about 17 percent of overall manufacturing value added in in the United States. So it's really big. And uh, if we cannot trust. Uh, if we, you know, must fear that China could at some point abuse its power uh, that it gets from uh, uh, this commercial position, then we should act on that. So the manufacturing sector is important for national security uh, concerns, for example. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing is that uh, if you look for good uh, jobs, then you'll find them often in the, in the manufacturing sector, jobs that pay relatively high wages for people uh, with relatively... Um, you know, low skills, for example, no, medium skills, and those jobs often are also very stable. So there are these two reasons why manufacturing might might be more important. Uh, and, and what should the U.S. do about that, if anything? I, one, the president seems to think one way to revive the uh, U.S. manufacturing sector is through tariffs on China. Is there a better way? So first of all, that is a strategy that could work. Uh, and uh, I think we, we, we start seeing something like uh, a return of, of production into the United States uh, for those reasons. There's no other way that firms, for example, in, uh, in Germany can hedge against the tariff uncertainty. Now, is this uh, a good way? No, not really, because uh, it, it costs uh, resources in other sectors. So you can revitalize the manufacturing sector, but at the same time, services, and in particular agriculture, suffer for two reasons. First of all, the resources need to revitalize the manufacturing sector need to come from somewhere. So if you had to, if the if you know the manufacturing sector requires engineers that otherwise would have become uh, I don't know investment bankers. No? So mm -hmm. you can't have the same human capital be you know in manufacturing and service at the same time. So there are opportunity costs, simply. And the second thing is, if you do it in a non-cooperative way, like the U.S. administration is unfortunately doing it, then you invite retaliation. Uh, and uh, the, in the case, for example, of, of, of automotive tariffs, so if the United States were to put, as sometimes threatened, tariffs on European cars, then there will be retaliation, and that will uh, be very bad for U.S. agriculture, will probably be very bad even for services. We're talking about digital sales tax, for example, in Europe. And in some, this will make the... Uh, the U.S. economy poor, but there is one thing that uh, you know. I'm a li I'm trained as a liberal e trade economist, no. But in the last years, reading Adam Smith, for example, no, I I, I learned that uh, there are uh, situations where one has to uh, take security concerns serious, and that can mean that uh, uh, we sacrifice a little bit of GDP uh, if we can uh, become more sovereign. Uh, in certain areas that are crucial uh, for the security of a nation. Now, I'm not sure at all whether in automotive, uh, in cars in particular, from an exported from an ally, Germany, to the United States, there's anything about security. Yeah, that's really a pretext. It's not that's really a, a security concern. No, but when we talk steel and aluminum, uh, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, well, also Germany, of course, has been an exporter to the United States, but uh, other countries as well, China, uh, Turkey, Russia, where this question is not so clear whether they are strategic allies or not, then one can make this case. And Adam Smith, uh, in 1776, you know, he, he made this defense for free trade, said division of, division of labor is wonderful. There's a sentence that says, however, you know, um, defense is of much more importance than opulence. Exactly. Adam Smith says so. And he... He rationalizes with this uh, the navigation acts that were in place in Britain at that time that were there to keep the Dutch out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a liberal economist like myself, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't think about you know politics and security concerns uh, to, to the, in, in the way that um, uh, politicians think about it. Uh, but you know, in order to understand what's going on, I think we have to bring this uh, power politics dimension back into trade policy. And when the, uh, the U.S. passed the Trade Expansion Act in 1962, it did have that national security clause, uh, Section 232, because of the, th- con- uh, the challenge from the Soviet Union. So, yes. it, so it took into consideration these, these security and strategic aspects. The yes. question is whether uh, th- those sort of concerns apply today or not. And the cut, you know, that's created in 1948, has Article 21, uh, which also allows for national security exemptions. Of course, there's always, whenever you allow for exemptions uh, in, in trade law, there's mm-hmm. always the danger that these are abused. And, I mean, it's it's probably really absurd to think about German cars as a threat uh, to uh, to U.S. security. Right. And that's why I think we won't see those, those, those uh, tariffs. They are so utterly ridiculous. But in the steel and aluminum case, and more broadly in in uh, dealing with China, which you know more and more appears as a as a very important, the only maybe geostrategic rival, uh, the new Soviet Union, if you like, in in geostrategic terms, then uh, there is more of a, uh, of a there's more legitimation to this. If you look at how the cut worked from forty eight uh, to ninety four, this was a world where the cut was successful, but the entire communist uh, uh, world was excluded. Right. So um, there was no so there was no security issue within the gut then, because the geostrategic rival was out of it. Now we have now the geostrategic rival within the system, right? Which makes things much more complicated. And, and so much of the last couple of years, I think, has been you know the awakening from this kind of Ricardian um, you know utopia of uh, of of sort of trade um, and comparative advantage um, without any considerations for security and and geostrategic um, yes. concerns so and I think we'll come to that in in a second but I wanted just to ask another question you know you talked about um, this morning about trying to pinpoint the Trump effect um, on trade, but also on you. You talked about globalization um, and and an end to the globalization boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, th- that seems not to have happened at the same time as Donald Trump took office. Um, so can you can you say a little bit about the 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 era of globalization we're in now and what characterizes it? Yeah. Uh, so a very striking feature uh, when uh, the world emerged from the. Uh, global economic and financial crisis in 2009-2010 after trade collapse, trade returned to some normal level, but then it didn't expand anymore at the rate that was larger than the rate of expansion of the overall economy. Mm -hmm. And that's a new regime because, you know, broadly speaking from the end of World War II to 2008 trade outgrew GDP or outgrew industrial production 
almost always. Mm -hmm. So if you then compute a ratio like uh, global exports over global GDP, that ratio would rise, 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 rise. And we'd call that globalization because yeah. more and more of an economy would be transacted on international markets. Now that ratio is flat from 2010 onwards to today. It's even slightly falling, mm -hmm. which means that we are no longer globalizing. We are also not exactly deglobalizing. So when the economist invented the new words globalization, I find that exactly right because we're now moving sidewards. And this happened in 2008, 9, 10, somewhere there. So the, this big crisis was pivotal for that. But of yeah. course, we know that only six years later, uh, President Trump was voted into office. So he can't have anything to do with that. Right. Which is not to say that he might have, he might not have a decisive impact in the future. If you think about the possibility of large tariffs on automobiles and auto parts or other potential trade actions uh, that, that the administration might take. But as of right now, I hear you saying it's hard to discern a Trump effect on international trade. Not yet. I mean, you're totally right. Uh, who knows what happens next? And it's certainly true uh, that uh, uh, U.S. trade with China is now shrinking, right? Uh, but we have shrinking trade relationships uh, elsewhere too. No? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and it's expanding in other areas, it, it even as it shrinks other, with China. Yes, because there's a lot of trade diversion going on, yeah. right? Um, I mean, what, what makes me relatively confident about, uh, about the future of world trade is that history tells us uh, that globalization has been pushed mostly by technological changes. Policy making plays a role, you know, the creation of the WTO, all of those free trade agreements, all this has helped, of course. But over the very long run, it was the invention of the steamship, then uh, of, um, let's say, of containers, and then in recent years, the digitalization of uh, logistics. All this pushes international cooperation and division of labor much more uh, than tariffs do. Of course, you can always have tariffs that are prohibitive, that are so mm -hmm. high that you know whatever technology is, you can't trade. But now talking about it, you know, tariffs that you know between zero and ten percent, even even between zero and twenty-five percent, the tariffs that are now in place in steel and aluminum, for example, or the tariffs that have been used uh, as countervailing duties in the Airbus Boeing dispute, yeah. these are unpleasant, of course. Uh, but compared to uh, compared to the um, effects of technological progress no, that accumulates over many years, these, these tariffs don't really stop the globalization process. Although I, I, my understanding is it can take a, a long, those waves can be pretty long. My yeah. understanding is that it wasn't until sometime in the 90s, for example, that we had the level of globalization that we had just before World War That's I. Correct. But it That's does correct. come back. That's correct. It takes some time. And uh, now, you know, when we said that there is a regime shift that happened, you know, between 2008 and 2010, uh, and that led to this globalization, we can pinpoint uh, to new restrictions all over the place. And they explain something like 20-25% of the slowdown. The rest is something else. Mm -hmm. It has to do with, with the policies, for example, in China that are not per se uh, uh, restrictions. They're just, you know, China has, um, has uh, followed a different development model that relies much less on uh, exports and much less on imports. Uh, and that has a major impact on the... Uh, in the last uh, few years. In the last few years, yeah. from 2010 onwards. And yeah. they saw, probably the Chinese leadership saw the fragility of the Western system and how that could drag them into, into bad economic situations too. In 2009, the 
they uh, put the largest ever fiscal stimulus of the world on the table you know, that rescued the, the Chinese economy, but they're still now suffering from, uh, from the consequences of that. The debt has risen so much. Uh, and I think one of their uh, strategic decisions was uh, to develop China more with a stronger focus on the interior uh, economy uh, because that would insulate them from those shocks from world markets. And that that is nothing really protectionist per se. No? So we don't we cannot say this is because of tariffs or because of, I don't know, discrimination mm-hmm. against foreign, foreign firms. This happens too in China, more than yeah. we like. But it is more this general reorientation of the whole business model that has contributed to this to this globalization uh, phenomenon of the last 10 years. And and that I think, you know, this this struggle that's happening in the United States and also has begun in Germany and in uh, across Europe about the primacy in policymaking. Is it on political and strategic uh, questions or is it simple simply growth maximization. Mm. Um, that, I think, is a struggle that is still playing out in the political systems in the United States and, and across yeah. Europe yeah. Um, with, with an unpredictable outcome. Yeah. Um, but I think you hear some, uh, some you know, growing voices in the United States that say the United States should find a way to cooperate with Europe to deal with these kinds of strategic aspects of China's uh, of China's role mm-hmm. of China's failure to liberalize in the way that we mm-hmm. expected mm-hmm. Uh, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and and so how do you see that progressing um, in Europe uh, or perhaps in Germany if you want to start there? So uh, Germany is a place where geostrategic thinking uh, has been uh, pushed out of the public debate quite a bit. No, that is for historical reasons, and um, uh, it's now making a very slow return. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, if you look at the German history of the last 20 years or so, it, you, you saw you know, political leaders from time to time to, to put you know, the issue on the table and to say our own economic uh, situation depends a lot uh, on our security as well. You know? So are we sure we can you know, rely on, you know, for example, uh, deliveries of petrol to arrive to terminate every point in time when the Middle East is so insecure. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is, compared to France, uh, probably also compared to Britain, and certainly compared to the United States, there's very little thinking and uh, very little debate about geostrategic uh, issues. And, you know, I think over the last 50 years or so, in Germany, many would have said, we don't mingle in this. No, it's the, there is the benevolent, uh, hegemon, it's the United States. They care for that. They keep the communists uh, out. Uh, you know, they deal with China now. Let us do business. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and so the GDP maximization is what we should do, and that is relatively uncontroversial, right? There is no not not a big debate about that mm-hmm. whether you should strive after economic uh, well-being. While the geostrategic dimension is also you know is risky in Germany. You no, know? but Germany is always. Uncertain. Uh, are we a Western country, or actually, you know, a continental power, or maybe even looking more to the East? You know, so it's um, this is this is politically risky. While just saying let's maximize GDP per capita, that's an easy choice. And that um, uh, tendency that you explain, I think, also uh, is why Germany likes to look to very cooperative mechanisms like the World Trade Organization and, and multilateral institutions in order, yes. to, in order to, to set the rules, in order to determine how trade should take place, because it's not a question of any one nation state asserting its power. It's a question of trying to find a common ground among all of them. But 
where does Germany stand in a situation where, uh, for better or worse, probably for worse, the WTO is having a hard time not only uh, passing new uh, trade agreements, but also dealing with disputes and, and creating new rules? Where, where does that leave Germany? Is, are there, is, should Germany be looking for other ways to uh, reform the world trading, or the world, uh, trading system to, to find new rules to, to increase uh, trade? So certainly, certainly Germany is very vulnerable to that uh, because a large share of our trade doesn't take place within free trade agreements, but it does trade uh, take place under the you know simple WTO system. Trade with the United States, for example, trade with China, with India, and um, so there is. And, and Germany relies more than all the other G20 uh, countries uh, on access to foreign markets, on both imports and exports. So there is a sense of vulnerability. I think that is there. Now, what to do about it? in Europe is a bit messy because Germany has um, delegated all its trade policy authority to Brussels. So the European Union is a customs union. It takes takes care of that. And there we do have conflicting interests. Uh, Germany is the export power, uh, the trading power in Europe, but uh, it's not the only voice. You know, the France has different uh, uh, instincts and different interests and uh, the other smaller European countries as well. The Eastern Europeans have their own agenda, their own history. So this is messy, it's complicated. Um, but what Germany uh, is certainly pushing for uh, in these years is uh, to strike, to conclude more free trade agreements. This can be substitutes to the WTO when it fails. So TTIP would have been one of those. It was a very German agenda that pushed for TTIP, and I hope we'll be able to 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 um, get to that agenda again. It's pushing for our, for other uh, regional free trade agreements. And then um, what um, um, I would like to see is that uh, uh, we understand that the world, with 164 WTO members today that are very very diverse, uh, would probably need some structure that's more flexible than the WTO. That's something that many in Washington require. And I think uh, Germany starts understanding that, that we need, like in Europe as well, a system that's more core periphery than a big monolithic system that's one size fits all. That, I think, history has shown doesn't, doesn't can, can you accomplish that, uh, Gabriel, inside the WTO? In other words, where you, know, where you would have a subset of WTO members who would uh, you know, subject themselves to more strict standards or... Would that kind of uh, future that you describe be possible only outside the WTO? So for, for many years, people thought that we could do that within the WTO and do plurilateral agreements. No? A procurement, government procurement, for example, is a successful technology information agreement. technology and so on. Um, but I think that the problems uh, of the WTO run much deeper. Uh, for example, what we see now uh, with the appellate body and, and the confirmation of members of that appellate body. Uh, and so I think uh, what we probably need is a, a full overhaul of that institution. And maybe at the end, it's no longer called WTO, but something else. It takes what is what's uh, you know, to be conserved and, and uh, it creates a system where you know countries that have the same uh, economic systems, market economies, that is... Uh, Form a core of something that is, and the core might be TTIP or TPP, as you know, as it was designed, uh, and and based on that, uh, something like a new international trade organization emerges, uh, and um, then there are countries that f 
by their own choice, uh, choose to have a different economic model. And that should be fine. We should not, maybe that's now a very European or German perspective, we shouldn't interfere. You know, if, they, if they don't like market economies, well, let them. You know, we know that's not a good choice, but let them. But that requires a different trading regime. And um, when uh, you know, that would require maybe a world where we are allowed to have more protection against those countries if they choose to you know, subsidize or, or have many more state-owned enterprises and we should be requiring reciprocity to ensure a level, a level playing field. So in a way, going back to the origins of the trading system and the GATT, where some countries weren't part of it. Exactly. And, and instead of being optimistic that every country can become part of it, be realistic that some might never really be able to function within it and see what else we can do as a second best solution. Yes. Uh, so I think that we should have as many countries as possible in a, in a, in a, in a, in a system that disciplines uh, the world trade uh, uh, flows and so on, uh, but there are different degrees of rigor, right? So um, countries that feel they want to go further should be allowed to go further. Uh, and uh, that would include setting up, you know, the, the appellate bodies and all, all these structures that WTO has. But then there might be countries that, for very different reasons, maybe, uh, don't want to join. No? And, and we should allow for the flexibility. If we don't do that, if we don't have the institutional design that, uh, that allows for that, the danger is that we lose the entire structure. And that would be much worse. Than, uh, than flexibilizing. Right, so it's not actually that countries necessarily have to be excluded, they just don't have, they can just sort of opt out of things, and a bit like the EU, like where you the have EU, some countries yes. that are in the monetary union, yes. some countries that are in Schengen, and some countries yes. that aren't. Yes, absolutely. The EU could be an example. It's dysfunctional in many ways. It's chaotic in many ways. But maybe we should accept that as a reality. We have 220 or so independent countries in the world with very different societies, very different preferences, and so on. And the idea of having one universal code that applies to everyone. I think this idea more and more proves wrong, and we should, if we find something, uh, you know, to be, to be um, uh, rejected by data, no, uh, then we should react upon that. Well, I think uh, you know you've you've identified uh, in our conversation here today, but also you know through through your research, areas that will require many years uh, of work by economists, by politicians, uh, and by people in the policymaking sphere um, to to uh, you know to reach that uh, that reality, a system that uh, that respects and advances the interests of countries like Germany and the United States, um, while also adapting to modern realities. So, uh, Gabriel, I want to thank you for, for being here in Washington, for joining us here at AICGS, uh, and for this conversation. It was a pleasure. All right. We really enjoyed thank it. You. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.